One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Welcome to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who put the fine in fine woodworking. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 142 for July 31st, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about making Ouija boards. Do you pronounce that Ouija or Ouija? I've always been a Ouija. Yeah, it's spelled scary. It's spelled Ouija. Uh, anyway, all right, low angle planes. Ouija. Ouija boards. Low angle planes on figured woods, olive oil on kitchen items, old log wood, and two questions that Matt will answer that he was late putting into the show notes, so I'm not going to put it in the intro. Nice job, Matt. That's called the suspense questions. <laughs> is that what that put is? In there? Is he going to actually give an answer? <laughs> Very nice. Okay. Uh, but before we get to all that good stuff, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. And by SawStop. SawStop is North America's number one cabinet saw and the world's safest table saw. Visit sawstop.com slash 175 to learn more about the professional cabinet saw model that Matt chose for his basement workshop. Then click on Find a Dealer to see the saw in action near you. All right, let's jump into what's on the bench. Um, well, kind of a big week for me, not all woodworking, but uh, marketing, I guess you could say. I finally launched the hybrid woodworking pre-order, which you guys, I'm sure, know about at this point. Oh, yeah, definitely looking forward to this. This should be a good one. I need some toilet, re- I mean, some reading when I'm uh, uh, <laughs> on the bedside and some inspiration. Hey, you know what? I bet you the more, I, w- I would say more, oh, stupid phone. Hold on. <laughs> That's would, somebody calling right now to get their order he in. Says, Can I have my book, please? <laughs> no, we don't have them yet. I didn't know you had a toll-free number. <laughs> I would guess that the the large majority of woodworking reading is probably done on the throne. Just in I, general. I know that's yeah. where I take a lot of my magazines. So Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So uh, the, the pre-order is open. There's an early bird pre-order bonus going till August 16th if you want to get in on it. And we're giving away some free guild time if you're interested in that or if you've 
I've just been interested in the guild. Maybe haven't been uh, so compelled to pull the trigger. This is a way for you to get sort of a trial membership, see what it's all about. But you get it for the price of the book, which is uh, pretty darn cool. So go to hybridwoodworking.com and you could find out more information about that. Uh, what is the price of the book? Did you say that? Already? It is twenty seven ninety nine, but for the pre order special, which includes shipping, it's th- uh, thirty three dollars even. What? It's still way cheaper than what you would get on the old Wheel of Fortune. On the old Wheel of Fortune, it'd probably be like uh, three thousand. Yes, everything's very expensive on the old Wheel of Fortune. That's quite I, a bargain. I was so disappointed when they changed formats and and uh, stopped doing that sort of shopping. Uh, yeah, the, the showcase hall or whatever it was. That yeah. was awesome. Yeah. Oh, anyway. Uh, well, you know, the nice thing about the book coming out and also getting the, the, the whole guild thing tied in there is mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some uh, lessons in the in the book that they could apply in the actual uh, builds going on in the in the guild. That's very true, Matt. Thanks for bringing so that up. So very true. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I thought I'd point out the obvious like I always do. <laughs> yeah, well, ultimately the whole, you know, giving a label to something that a lot of us do automatically, you know, is, is hybrid woodworking. We all, not all of us, many of us use a combination of hand tools and power tools, and that's just the way that I build. So putting it in a book format was really just me taking the methodology that I use every day. Um, and certainly in the guild projects, the, anyone who's seen a number of those projects knows that, that I do rely on my hand tools a lot of the time. So... Um, kind of a cool tie-in. Uh, but uh, aside from that, speaking of the guild, I am moving along with that blanket chest project and got the case panels done, got the the giant finger joints, I guess you would call them, uh, got those milled, and everything fits together nice and snug. Couldn't be happier. So uh, that project is trucking along. Very cool. Yeah. All right, Matt, how about you? Well, the big thing for me, uh, it, it's wedding box season, so I have a little bit of an assembly line set up, and i playing with a new design, which... I am pretty sure this is going to mean I can knock them out a lot faster. Now I'm going to have to find another excuse to have to be down in the shop so that, you know, I, I can play with other things. <laughs> um, so, but that, that's been kind of fun playing with that one. But the other thing I've got going on, a, a big a kind of a, an announcement, I think I'm pretty sure some people have seen it before. Uh, the, the folks over at Centipede uh, Tools, we mm-hmm. are doing a Centipede Sawhorse contest on my website, and it's actually, we're kind of tying it in with theirs. They've, uh, uh, Finally reached a point, I mentioned last time that they reached a point with their funding that they are now guaranteeing that they'll be able to deliver the uh, sawhorses that are being uh, uh, requested right now as part of the fundraising. And all we're saying is, you know, to enter this contest, uh, you just tell us about your traditional sawhorse and how they've maybe failed you in the past or tell us about why you can't get your hands on a sawpeed sawhorse of your own right now. And we'd love to get pictures, videos. I can just imagine some of the things like if (laughs) if I ever took pictures of my really old sawhorses, I don't even think anybody would recognize them, (laughs) you know, because there's definitely a couple of them that I'm like, what the heck did I do to that? How, How did that get so mangled? So hopefully, I have very many getting... zero clearance curves. In do my you, see, I do too, actually. <laughs> hey, so then with the centipede, I mean, you guys bring up a good point. Uh, sawhorses are really kind of just there to get the crap beat out of them. Right? How does something that I imagine is a little more expensive than your conventional sawhorse? Um, how does that hold up? Like, what do they have built into it that allows you to beat it up or, or put a sacrificial surface on it so that you're not damaging this expensive thing that you just paid for? Well, that's the, the nice thing is it's the Unlike our traditional sawhorses where you tend to have 
you know, the, the bar going across, which will actually support the piece. There's more or less kind of like little specific points along mm-hmm. the whole kind of accordion shape that it has as it opens up. Right. And so you could put your piece on there and you can actually, uh, much like these plastic sawhorses are the disposable ones that we tend to make for ourselves, you can cut into these surfaces and it's not really going to damage it at all. Oh. And if it does, I do believe they have replacement parts for it so they can fix it up pretty easy. Um, and again, a lot of the supporting, you know how, this is the one thing I hate and I, what I hate about this is when I forget to put like the third or fourth sawhorse in there and I make the cut and suddenly the whole thing just cuts right in the middle because <laughs> Matt wasn't thinking that kind of a thing. And this, this will support it so that you can make, you know, weird cuts wherever and it's just going to support it all the way across the piece. So you don't have to have, you know, an extra third or fourth sawhorse in there. Oh, that's that's awesome because I think a lot of people forget about that. If you're breaking down large pieces of stock, you go, okay, well, I've got a big board. What do I need? Like two sawhorses? And then you, you get into a <laughs> point where you... Hinges <laughs> in the middle. And, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. you, you go to cut or, it and you hear a shing, you know? So. Yeah, or even where you do the thing where it gets hanging over the edge. So, you know, three quarters of the sheet is being properly supported and you have that one quarter and you start cutting it and you get to that end and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very cool. Good stuff. So that's I, where I my think family I is. Get, I definitely want to get a pair of these, and I want to set them up at the, the museum because I think they would go well with the kind of 1870s. I was going to say, they wouldn't, they wouldn't contrast the mood a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it would be awesome. Well, it'll be when, when the Flying Saucer visited the museum in 1894. Yeah. Yeah, these are period accurate. Spray it like a, a gun, like a gun metal kind of a color, and then maybe <laughs> get go. some sort of steam engine hooked up to it. And it could be like a steampunk kind of a thing. Mm, nice. Ooh. Like yeah, that. there we go. But anyway, so that's the that's the big and fun, exciting stuff that's been happening with me. Uh, now, Shannon, you are got another lathe going on. Is that <laughs> another week? Yes, it's true. Another lathe. It's true. Well, you know, to be to be honest, I never intended to build as many spring pole lathes as I did. I just was experimenting a lot. But uh, the whole kind of catalyst for building these lathes was the flywheel treadle lathe that I have now started. And uh, speaking of steampunk, there's a lot of that in this. Um, it, it's it's pretty hardware intensive. I went back to my blacksmith friend and got uh, had him craft a, a crank arm for me. And then I spent a lot of time with the fine folks at McMaster Car getting ball joint assemblies and all kinds of just cool stuff. So it's mm-hmm. I, I like to think I've been kind of mulling over the design for probably five years and i pulled together a lot of stuff that i've seen at williamsburg and in the woodwright shop and at winterter and that i've worked with at the museum and i'm pretty psyched about this this is um this is definitely the the borg of uh treadle lathes it has assimilated many things nice i yes, want to know I, how do you get a blacksmith friend i'd like to get one. <laughs> really? Oh, it's the it's the best where do i, I go for one? Picking one i have a, i have a cnc friend i don't have a blacksmith friend you just like I, uh, walk around until you see smoke and then you hear like a hammer pounding or something. You listen to the ping of the hammer and you yes. just follow towards it. Yeah, the funny thing is, is now I have actually um, three blacksmith friends. So they come, in, they come in groups. Well, you know what? They I'm don't gonna go know about one another, though, so I don't want them to find out about one another. <laughs> Share the wealth, man. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can get in touch with Peter Ross. Uh, he did that uh, compass video that we reviewed a couple of weeks ago, Matt. Oh, yeah, definitely. Maybe, maybe he he'll those be my scary friend. forearms. Yeah, just, he does. just send him a, a, an email or or carrier pigeon or something that just says, "Will you be my blacksmith friend?" Because <laughs> I need one of those, please. <laughs> I'm going to blacksmithfriend.com right now to see if I can find one of my uh, my area. There's got to be. Oh man, that's awesome. All right, moving into what's new. 
got a bunch of links here that we could share with you, stuff that folks sent to us. Uh, Jonathan sent us a link to a YouTube video showing an Escher-style chessboard. Um, he says, I found Jonathan the- actually is friends with my blacksmith friend, too. Is He's he? used him to make hinges. Well, how do you feel about that? Does it make you jealous? <laughs> I, I, I called my blacksmith friend a, a hua and walked away in a house. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jonathan says, I found this video of someone making an Escher-inspired chessboard. I think the most interesting part of the video is how he clamps the lamination together with his car. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very cool. So we'll have the link in the show notes. You can Who needs see a veneer press? Just drive over it. It works. It works. I wonder if it depends on what model it is. Like, whoa, 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 that one is way too much pressure. Get that one out of here. Bring the Yugo in. This right. is a small board. Yep. All right. Hey, well, Kenji sent in a video about dovetails made with a table saw jig. Now, this is this is an older uh, video, and it's put out by the folks over at Woodworkers Journal, and it features Sander making a table saw dovetail jig. So if you are so inclined and you want to try this out, it looks like it's about four and a half minutes or so, and it looks like it's some pretty detailed information. So if you don't want to hand cut your dovetails with a handsaw and you really hate your router... Go for the t- table saw. <laughs> cool. Or you could buy a book called Hybrid Woodworking to didn't, learn how didn't. to do it, too. Well, you do it on your bandsaw, then. Oh, Ooh. okay. Yeah, I didn't wow. show the table saw. Just the bandsaw. Let's see. Um, uh, at Azuram uh, on Twitter, he's actually one of the hosts of the Bad Movie Podcast, which if you're ever looking for a good laugh, check that out. That's mm. a good, good show. Cool. He sent me a link to a gaming table, and it made me think of Mark. Uh, this is... It's awesome sauce. There's no other way to put it. It's mm-hmm. just this incredible table. You can see like a little bit of green and green in it, mm-hmm. you know, with a lot of the, the heavy details. But then there's also some like, you know, House of Elrond from Lord of the Rings <laughs> thrown in there. <laughs> it's, awesome. it's just awesome. And it's got all kinds of moving parts. It's got cup holders, people. Cup holders. <laughs> it's got little pull-out things to roll dice in. It's just, it's just one of those things where you take a, a typical table and you suit it to a very, very specific need. And it's just, it's just great. So. I looked at some of the other stuff on that site because the link that we have here is broken. And it, oh, no. But everything else on the site seems to work. So I'll, hopefully that link will work by the time uh, we post this. But you will be able to see at the very least on the homepage um, under furniture, you'll see uh, thumbnails of some of the tables. And the Sultan is the one you're talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. Huh. And I actually shared that link with uh, Will Wheaton um, mm-hmm. on the tabletop <laughs> show. And I wonder if maybe he linked to it and then broke it. Uh, well, I don't. Uh, can you just break one page on a website? <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> we'll DDoS that one page. Yeah, when he yeah. Posted it because the sure. rest of the site works just fine. Um, oh, all right. Yeah. Well, we'll put the link there anyway. Hopefully nice. All right. Well, hey, I've got this one coming in from Lamar, and Lamar just want to let us know about a free design course coming this fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's specifically not Matt woodworking, but might be good to help train people on the basics of design. So I headed on over to see what this is all about, and it's the udacity.com, uh, blog.udacity.com. And apparently this is a free course. It's uh, based on the book, The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. And they're claiming that it's going to cover, let's see what we also cover in these courses, the relationship between design and business and incorporate career discussions and advice from successful designers across diverse industries. So there's like a whole bunch of stuff in here, I guess. And more importantly, it's free. So if you've ever wondered how you could maybe figure out how to design things or want to know more about design things, this might be a class. didn't feel like paying for it. There you go. That's even more important. (laughs) But didn't care that much to pay for it. This is the source for you. Yeah, that's free. That's good enough for me. Cool. 
We, oh, and then, hey, uh, Preston sent in a link to a video saying, if that was me running a bandsaw that quick, I'm sure I would lose a digit. Now, you're going to find this over at YouTube, and this is a, a bandsaw course, or actually not a bandsaw course. This guy's like running an obstacle course on a bandsaw and makes a crazy reindeer out of this thing. And what, I think it takes a whole two minutes is the yeah. video, and they, it, I think they're swearing that it's not sped up, but it sure looks like it to me. Either way. Um, yeah, I probably would have lost at least three or four digits and not even realized it before the first cut was done. Well, it's one of those things where they take a block of wood and he's making cuts on you know various surfaces, and when it's all done, you kind of just open it up, and this little deer, you know, reindeer, appears in the middle. Ta-da! Yeah, it's it, a snowflake. It's wild. It reminds me of that puzzle box magic video. I was that just we... gonna say, but I have the feeling this guy probably has a lot more personality. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> possibly, uh, but yeah, it's pretty wild. I just want to know. When when is like when do you need a reindeer that bad that you want to just like <laughs> like how do you oh get that how do you I need a reindeer stat yeah how do you get that good at making that reindeer like you must really need some reindeer <laughs> oh no prancers down in mom's yeah, nativity scene wait that would be the nativity scene uh, no you're mixing mixing things a little bit there well right. uh, last week we did mention real quickly the um, French oak rubo project mm-hmm. uh, otherwise known as forp and um. I made mention of the fact that you got to go check out Jamil's photography because it's always really, really high quality. Well, he's made a video. Oh, my God. It's like 24 minutes long, but I just call it pure woodworking entertainment because it's <laughs> there's cool artsy-fartsy shots in it, um, lots of really good woodworking, lots of kind of Tim Allen humongous machine moments. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's well worth checking out. It's just really, really well done. Well, you had me at fartsy, so I am totally over the <laughs> Get this one. You had me at four. <laughs> right. Yeah, that usually does it. Okay, moving into poll of the week. As you know, my buddy Tom Iovino, he uh, supplies us with these great questions every week, and we get your thoughts on them. This week he asked, what do you think of files and rasps? Hmm. I think that they're hmm. not very comfortable in your hand if you run your hand up and down them. <laughs> no, they do hurt. Yes. Uh, okay, almost 40%, 39 said... Essential tools, 38% said that they're great to have, 16% said that they're okay, and 4% said only if someone buys them for me. (laughs) That could be a response for just about anything. Um, And 2%, I think that they're a waste of time. 13 people said that they're a waste of time. What? That's what I'm saying. What? I don't even use them that much, but I don't consider them a waste of time. I find them to be an essential tool. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. Uh, kickback. We've got a couple of things to read. This is where you tell us some information or feedback on things that we've talked about in the past. Uh, I'll take the first one here from AJ Hopkins. In episode 141, you had a discussion about finishing with dangerous chemicals. I recently started reading a book by George Grotz that indicated that TSP, trisodium phosphate, is a better option to simulate aging of wood. Not only is it a relative to lye, it is far less caustic and far more affordable and available. And uh, so TSP, I've, I've seen that at Home Depot and Lowe's. It's just a, a cleaning material that comes in what almost looks like those little milk cartons that you used to drink of at a, as a kid, the little mm-hmm. yeah. things, which don't drink it. Probably not a yeah, good idea. Yeah. What, what are they trying to do with that packaging? You know, <laughs> know. trying to kill us, basically. You Put that think. right next to the uh, the malt balls and you'll be all set at the counter. Seriously, you get all nostalgic. Oh, this reminds <laughs> me of kindergarten. You swing that back and <laughs> you know, you're in the hospital. Do you remember blowing bubbles in those till they came out and the lunch lady came over and slapped you upside the head? Ah, oh, fun memories. <laughs> good times, good times. Uh, but yeah, so essentially this stuff is um, it's a basic solution and that's pretty much what they say when you use like 
um, what do you call it, the sodium hydroxide pellets for drain cleaner that you can use to put on. I have usually hear it in, in reference to cherry. seems to respond uh, very well to this type of a treatment. I don't know about other woods, but um, sounds like it's something interesting that's at least worth digging into. As an option, I mean, and I still wouldn't, you know, get too uh, too footloose and fancy with <laughs> with <laughs> trisodium phosphate because it is still a, a, a basic solution. Uh, but ultimately, if it's a little bit safer to use and you still get great effect from it, why the heck not? Give it a shot. Heck yeah. Absolutely. Sweet. Well, hey, we had another kickback that came in from Mark, and this is a Mark with a K, so you know, the information might not be so reliable. Mm-hmm. But uh, just kind of kidding, Mark. Uh, in episode 141, you discussed moving tools. I'm writing to add to the advice you gave Wes last week. I, I'm in the military as well and have moved in my workshop five times since purchasing the equipment. You're entitled to have the military pay to create your tools. I did once, and they were the poorest specimens of carpentry I've ever seen. The following move, I built my own crates from half-inch ply and one-by material. I've never regretted it. I save the crates and reuse them. I pack the tools inside to minimize movement. Additionally, I will coat the cast iron tops of the tools with grease and thick paper if they're going to go in storage for any length of time. And the tools have shipped without damage every time. The Hmm. crates allow the movers to tug and pull on any surface without fear. And additionally, they can stack stuff on top of them in the truck without damage. There you go. Mm, definitely. That was one thing I thought about is I got a neighbor who likes to make pallets. And the reason I know he likes to make pallets is when he messes them up, he goes, hey, your, uh, your fire pit needs some more wood. I'm like, no, I got projects <laughs> I messed up myself. <laughs> nice. Well, that's a great idea. I mean, that's, that's half of the battle is protecting the stuff. So if you can just build a basic crate, that just makes everybody's life that much easier. Mm-hmm. I know when whenever we got transferred and the military moved us, it was always a fun adventure. Mm-hmm. Usually involved like four Marines that just showed up with a truck. <laughs> just, just picked you up in the stuff. middle of the night and threw you out in the middle of it. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Come on, son. Uh, Shannon, well, do you want to take Bob's? We, got, um, we actually got a, a really good pe- – I say actually got a piece of feedback from Bob Rosieski. <laughs> like, like his feedback's normally not very good. But, um, <laughs> this, this time is, he actually gave us real information. <laughs> this this time I, I agree with it, which is ironic because he's disagreeing with me. Uh, he had a comment about episode 141 concerning carving gouge bevels where he would somewhat disagree with me. Uh, I said that um, the inside bevel on a carving gouge is for specialized situations and not for all the gouges. He says, I'm going to stick my neck out a bit and say that I'd be willing to bet that most people who carve for furniture, i.e. low-relief carving, will put an inside bevel on the majority of their gouges. I can't speak for figure carving in the round, but for carvings that are typically done for furniture, a good bit of the work is done with the flute turned face down as there are a lot of shallow, convex surfaces in furniture carving. Having a bevel on the inside of the flute makes light modeling cuts on these surfaces possible. Without that inside bevel, it becomes very difficult to control the gouge. The primary bevel grind on the outside of the flute will typically be in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 degrees, while the bevel on the inside of the flute will be something like 5 degrees and very small and short to boot. The inside bevel is not ground like the outer bevel. Rather, it's created with a slipstone when sharpening, and it's small enough that you can go undetected without giving the appearance of no bevel at all unless you look closely. However, even a very small bevel such as this on the inside of the gouge provides a large measure of control. So it, it sounds like what, what Bob is, is saying is it's almost like the ruler trick for carving gouges. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a very, very tiny bevel. And you know, I, I have to say in, in listening to this, I, I certainly would agree because I've, I've done this when I've talked about the specialized tools. That's kind of what I was referring to. I just only have a couple of them. 
Um, the interesting thing is, is I think this also brings up a, um, one of those kind of controversial things. Um, when I went to a class with Chuck Bender and I was learning carving from him, he was very keen not to let us do this, to turn it flute down and kind of use the curve of the, of the flute to create a curve on the, um, on the carving. Mm-hmm. He would give us a straight chisel <clears throat> and say, make the curve using the straight chisel. And it was more of like a technique builder. Now, that being said, I'm sure that probably somebody like Chuck has done this and probably has, you know, back bevels on his gouges because it is easier. Um, so I, I guess I'm still kind of reeling from the harsh treatment that I got at, at the Acanthus workshop <laughs> where I was only allowed to use straight gouges. So um, I definitely um, I definitely can see where Bob's coming from here. So great point. Thanks for the uh, decent feedback for once. Where, where can I sign up for Chuck Bender's carving boot camp? Yeah, really. I would love to be whacked on the back of the hand with one of those. <laughs> oh, very nice. All right, let's move into our voicemail. We do have one this week from Stuart, who wants to know about dog hole spacing and drilling. Hi, Mark and Matt. This is Stuart calling from Missouri. A uh, new listener to start about a month ago, and I'm up to episode 56. Oh, so, so Shannon doesn't exist yet. Work. I was going to say, obviously, I don't exist yet. Change over time, but I'll leave soft stop out of this, Matt. Anyway, I was wondering, I built my workbench. I have a front vise and an end vise. And could you give me some advice on my three-quarter inch dog holes that I'm going to put in the top of it? As far as standard spacing, uh, how do you get it to work out so they intersect correctly when the ones from the front vise and the end vise come together? Uh, any tips? Uh, also, maybe how to put them in the top. A lot of different uh, thoughts out there. Thanks a lot. All right, so based on his, his listening schedule, I'm going to say, how's it going, Stuart? How's 2014 treating you? Because <laughs> yeah. I figure by the time he actually gets to this number, it's when it's going to be. Um, all right, so Bench, what's you want? Dog hole spacing and drilling techniques. Do either, right. either of you guys want to tackle this? Well, he didn't ask me. so <laughs> You're not on the show yet, so you stay quiet. Well, I, I'll go ahead and start with the actual like drilling them and you could do it the way I've done the one uh, the ones for my bench top is you could just simply take a hand drill and once you get that hole started, it's it. I know a lot of people get very nervous about making sure that their holes are exactly ninety degrees, but it doesn't take that much practice to to really just kind of drill through and get a feel for it. Even if you nest, if you need to, if you need a guide, just set yourself up with a, a nice square alongside of that and use that as a visual reference. Um, and that's pretty much how I drilled the holes for mine. Mm-hmm. I just used a spade bit. That was another thing. Uh, some people might suggest a Forstner bit, but man, that's going to heat up really bad. It might even take you a little while. An auger bit may also work. Another suggestion that we've seen out there is I know the folks over at Popular Woodwork. In fact, Glenn Huey, I think, was the one that was doing it. And I think I've referenced this before and couldn't remember if it's actually him then either. Uh, but he used uh, his uh, plunge router to go ahead and make those holes so that mm. they're uh, dead on straight going into it. So that is yet another option for you. Uh, when it comes to the spacing, uh, I really just kind of eyeballed it, to be quite honest with you. I think I maybe said, well, maybe I'll put one every two or three inches and just kind of go from there. I really didn't have a set plan that said they need to be exactly this versus that. Um, I'm sure if you have like an end vice or something, there could be a formula that you could try and figure out for the size boards that you might work with so that you can guarantee that it gets pinched the right way between the wagon vice or the end vice and the, uh, the, the uh, bench dog itself. But 
I really just kind of eyeballed it by what I need. And actually, I will go so far as to say I even kind of make them up as I go. Like, I really could use one right here right now, so I'll <laughs> drill another one as needed. That's kind of the great thing about yeah. the three-quarter inch holes, right? I mean, you could just plop one anywhere you need one. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of them. It's because until they come out with a square drive drill that I then don't have to worry about, I'll, I'll keep on using these round ones, those mm-hmm. square ones. Those are so 1888. <laughs> right. You're on to something there, Matt, that I think he should seriously consider going less is more and adding as he needs them. He said something about how do you get them so that they intersect properly. Um, and, uh, you know, the only line of dog holes on my bench, which, by the way, I did, like you, Matt, I did three inches on center, which I found to be a good spacing. That's the only line I have. The other holes I have have just been kind of thrown in as I've needed them. Mm-hmm. If he's talking about making a line that's kind of parallel to the bench to the long axis for like an invice and then making another line perpendicular to his front vice, do you really need those many dog holes? Right. Um, I think you need to, to think twice about that. You don't want to turn your bench top into Swiss cheese because you, <laughs> right. you just... You're not going to use them all those holes very much. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sorry, I was just reading an email. <laughs> <laughs> I should not do that during the show. That's okay. I'm doing the show notes right now for my website. Okay, there you go. Yeah, let's all get some work done while we do this. Jeez, multitask. All right. Well, speaking of email, we actually have some that we need to answer. Uh, I'll go first. Who is this from? Jerry. He says, someone has asked me to make an artistic wood version of a Ouija board. I'm scared already. Hold my hand. Uh, I'm going to uh, woodburn designs and do a little carving. But my question is, what would I make the board out of? Uh, You should ask the Ouija board this. That's that's right. Oh, that's awesome, Shannon. (laughs) All right. if If I make it as thin as a regular game board, the wood may very well warp and cup. If I use some kind of plywood, I really don't want anyone to be able to tell that it was made of ply. So what do you all think would be the best approach? Well, for something like this, something that has to remain flat or as flat as possible and fairly thin, because ultimately you don't want the hills and valleys, because then when someone's pushing it, pretending that it's a ghost, then it's going to just mess everything up. So why um, would they do that? I don't I don't know what that's what happens. Um, okay. I would say plywood is actually a really good choice. And although you don't want people to see the outside edges, sometimes if you go thin enough, they become completely insignificant. Um, depending on what the core is made from. So that may be an option. Uh, even if it is thin and, and you do want to um, still use that plywood, you can cover those edges up if they really do bother you, um, even with a thin material. So just give yourself some solid wood edging and trim it nice and flush, and that actually might look pretty good. And the other suggestion I would have is if you do want to make it out of solid wood, uh, just go with something that's really, really known to be stable. You know, So a quarter saw and cut. Um, would be a good way to go, something that tends to stay flat and not expand and contract very much, um, or, or uh, riffs on as well. If you have to go the solid root, solid wood route, uh, that's what I would do. Um, but ultimately, Ouija boards, good fun. Good what, do you, for, what do you think of just using like a quarter-inch MDF? If he's going to veneer over the top of it. Yeah, I mean, if he's going to veneer, that's, that's fine, but then he's still got the edges to, to worry about too. Couldn't he veneer those too? It could. I mean, I mean I, this is funny coming from me because I hate MDF, but just <laughs> when you say stable and thin, that, that might work. Well, and then they make, you know, MDF core plies. So if he could just save, he could save himself a ton of time if he's just going to do something. I mean, there's a lot of options for something that's thin and fairly stable um, that, that he could do if he wanted to. So I, I would just, for the fun of it, recommend maybe getting the wood from a tree that was known to have uh, been used for a hangman's tree. 
That Ooh. would just make for some good fun. That'd be creepy. Even if you don't, tell the client that's what you did. Exactly. <laughs> nice. That's this awesome. is made with blood wood and not the blood wood tree. <laughs> good stuff. Nice. Well, let's see. We had an email from Chris who said, I am going to purchase either the Veritas Low Angle Smooth Plane or the Veritas Number 4 Smooth Plane. Mm. I work a lot on cherry and maple. I will occasionally work on these woods that are curly. Due to the occasional figure that I work with, I'm wondering if I'm shortchanging myself if I were to purchase the low angle plane. How does this plane perform on non-figured woods? Mm. Is there any difference in the finish that will be achieved in non-figured wood between the two planes? Um, I have a Veritas low angle smooth plane. I don't have a a number four smooth, but I I do have... um, whatever, a normal bevel down Veritas plane. I don't think you're going to see much difference between the finish um, that you're going to achieve on a non-figured wood. Um, <clears throat> even then, maple maple can be a beast when it comes to hand planing just because it's so hard. Cherry, I've had good success without going bevel up and high angle on figured cherry. Uh, cherry is just a lot more easy to plane. So, I mean, I think that the low angle plane it's kind of a utility player, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that you can very quickly change the blade and change that bevel angle, that's really what's making it plain, uh, better results on a, on a figured wood. Uh, I don't think the plain body itself is really doing much there. Um, so I, I don't think you're going to see that much of a difference. So I think to get the most options for really heavily figured woods and just regular straight grain woods, going with a low angle plane is fine. Just, um, you know, swap your blades around if, if necessary for a higher angle on those figured woods. Sweet. That sounds good to me. Hey, so I have a question here. Uh, now, I'm going to just put this out there that I've never actually worked with boards that have a live edge. They've all been pretty dead by the time that I get them. <laughs> but this question came in from Andy, and Andy says, I'm making a bookcase, and the shells have a live edge. And I'm wondering what is the best way to finish it. I tried a foam brush and diluted poly. When I was done, all I had was the foam brush stick. <laughs> the bark <laughs> had a cheese grater effect, which was not the outcome I was going for. Help! I'm thinking of purchasing an HVLP sprayer. Would this be the way to go? Uh, yeah, an HVLP sprayer would be a, a really great way to go because then you wouldn't have to worry about losing your foam brush to the live edge monster. Um <laughs> But, you know, to be quite honest with you, when it comes to something like a live edge, this is obviously going to be a much more, I will say, textured surface. It's going to have a lot more grabbing on there. And as a person who is super cheap, I like to go with the foam brushes because they are so, so inexpensive. But I have been stung so many times with a foam brush getting uh, caught in a little splinter here or a little mm-hmm. crack there or something that when it comes to a surface that I know is going to be really kind of textured like that I like to use the word textured in this situation um, I, I'm going to immediately start thinking of going to more like an actual brush like a really decent brush because if you spend the money for a high quality brush chances are it's going to hold up much better under this situation and you won't have that cheese grater effect um, so that would be my advice. Of course, an HVLP sprayer, uh, wouldn't be touching the surface at all. So you wouldn't have to worry about it, uh, eating anything up. But, um, in the meantime, I think even a premium brush is still inexpensive compared to the HVLP sprayer. True that. True that. Hey, can I oh. add something here though? Yeah. Um, he maybe. Meant, <laughs> all right. You want me to 
give it to you offline and just make sure it's <laughs> no, okay. No, no, go for it. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, most live edge work is done with the bark off. Mm-hmm. You know, they knock the bark off and you still have this beautifully textured, amazing looking surface because ultimately when the tree is cut and that bark is left on, that bark is not on there, but, you know, it just kind of has a loose grip and right. it's it very easy to pop that stuff off. So if you haven't done something to secure it, you might be disappointed to find that that bark just falls off at some point or easily gets knocked off. Um, now, when you take the bark off, the surface that's left over is still fairly rough, but not so much that it's going to destroy, I don't know, maybe if you have a cheap foam brush, you might have it catch once in a while. Um, but ultimately, the surface should able should be able to be finished with uh, rags or brushes with no problem. Um, but what I was concerned about is it sounds like he's left the bark on there. Um, that, that's actually kind of what I was thinking, too, because... Yeah, every every actual live edge thing, and I'm thinking of like a Rob Bowis uh, project where he had a live edge on there. Don't, don't think about Rob Bowis. I can't stop that thinking about never Rob takes Bowis you to because a good of Woodworking place. America a couple of years ago, <laughs> Mister Tight Shirt. Whoa. <laughs> so, anyways, though, but that's what I was thinking is, you know, if you spend a little extra time, you can still have that effect of that the live edge, but yet, you know, just spend a little little extra time in there, kind of working the surface so that it's not this monstrous sandpaper finger eaten kind of a feeling. Mm-hmm. I feel like I saw somebody do this once and they left the bark on, but they like used a, I don't know how you dilute epoxy, I guess. How well, do the, you dilute epoxy? Well, there are, hardener? There, are, there are types that are more dilute than others. Like the West system right. is pourable, but if you buy like the two tube thing at Home Depot, that's much thicker. <laughs> or like yes, that bar top stuff. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. That, that self-leveling, whatever. I feel like I could be just imagining this, but I guess if I were to try it, I would want to kind of stabilize it first mm-hmm. with some sort of epoxy. And then that actually might serve a bit as a um, as a finish, you yeah, know, depending yeah. on, on, on what it looks like. Um, clear Penetrating Epoxy Sealer, CPES, is a good product. It's a very dilute epoxy mixture that's meant to uh, really seal up wood that's been rotted and kind of just firm up the wood fibers. That's something I can imagine you kind of squeezing at the line between the bark and the, and the actual right. wood itself. And maybe that could get down in there and help hold it in place. Is that the stuff you used? Um, was that a guild video or something? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you did out- like a demo on, on an outdoor yep. finish. That's it. Yeah. Stuff cool. is nuts, man. man you know, I, I also, about- I think this also can help Jerry making the Ouija board too. Um, with the live edge, what he needs to look for is a board with an undead edge. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's good. Good one. Sorry, two points, Shannon. Two points for <laughs> Shannon. <laughs> All right, who's next? What do we got here? I'm uh, lost. Uh, that's back to you, buddy. Me? Yeah. yeah. I want to yeah. hear about your olive oils. Sheesh. All right. Uh, I was recently, oh, this is from Tim. I was recently in Italy, where, or if you ask my mom, Italy. <laughs> not sure why she says it that way. I was recently in Italy where olive oil is rather abundant, to say the least. One of the shops that piqued my curiosity was a small woodcraft-oriented store that sold cutting boards made from olive trees. The cutting boards had the most delicious smell of, guess what, olive oil, and were beautiful as well. My question is, does olive wood smell like olive oil, or did they use olive oil to finish the cutting board, like I would with mineral oil? Uh, with the added benefit of smelling like something out of the best Italian kitchens, Tim. Well, here's the secret, Tim. The fact is, all Italians generally just smell like olive oil. <laughs> That's very true. I have noticed that. So I'm guessing the smell in the shop was actually from the employees and not necessarily from the wood. <laughs> That's just my theory as a fellow Italian. That's uh, <laughs> that's just something that we do. We excrete olive oil. 
Antonio, get over there. You got to get next to the boards. Those things are starting to smell like wood. <laughs> hey, rub your face on that board for a minute, would you? Um, yeah. So the thing is with olive oil, and this is this is a contested issue. Uh, some people will use olive oil to finish their kitchen spoons, their uh, cutting boards, things like that. But the concept is some oils go rancid over time and some don't. Yet there are people who use olive oil who, if it went rancid and became a problem, I'm sure they would stop using it. And, and they claim that, no, this isn't a problem for me. So the theory says olive oil, vegetable oil, things like that, uh, they're non-drying oils and they will eventually go bad. And they do. If you've ever had a really old thing of vegetable oil or something like that, smell it. It's, it's nasty. The question is whether putting a little bit on these kitchen items will, will make them impart a nasty smell or taste to the food. Um, the theory is, yes, it will. But there are people who will argue against that because they've done it and it's not a problem for them. So, so take that for what it's worth. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't usually recommend that people use olive oil for that reason just to be safe. But I know people who do it. So you can. But, and we can add that olive wood does smell like olives. I was just going to ask. Actually, I didn't. I've totally forgot about that. I don't know. I've never used olive wood, so it yeah, does. I've only ever turned it, and it's like the most wonderful thing you'll ever turn. It's really? cuts like butter. It's really, really close grain, like almost invisible grain. Yeah. Um. So kind of like it's not as hard as ebony, but you know how ebony just it polishes to a high shine mm-hmm. because it's so dense. Olive wood is the same way, oh. and it smells like you dunked your head into a jar of olives. It's awesome. Very cool. So there you so go. So cool. Yeah. I w- so I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to find out what this shop actually does with their, their materials, or if that's just the, maybe they're left natural and it just has that odor. That's very or cool. Or maybe these are just the ones that they built and they use, and they're like, I'm done with this one. I need a new one. Yeah. Let's sell it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it. The olive oil I rubbed on this went rancid. Let's just sell it. <laughs> we'll sell it to the Americans. They can't even pronounce Italy right. <laughs> Italy. <laughs> nice. All righty. We've got a question from Jared. <clears throat> he says... Hey guys. Hey Jared. I'm getting ready to attempt to build my first bed. I visited my local boutique sawmill where I always buy my lumber. The owner mentioned heart pine and that he has logs that are over 100 years old. Uh, I did a bit of research and found out that heart pine is really just the name of heartwood from extremely old growth, mostly longleaf pine. Apparently, this stuff hasn't been harvested for over a century. When he said that, I became intrigued because how cool would it be to make a bed out of a wood you can't really get anymore? So cool. (laughs) So Awesome. (laughs) My question relates to wood movement. He told me the wood is still in logs, but he can put them on his wood miser and cut them to any dimension I want. So if the log is over 100 years old, do I assume it's as dry as it's going to get? I just wonder if he cuts them for me and I take the boards home, what are the chances of the wood moving on me? Uh, The chances of the wood moving on you is 100%. Wood never, ever, 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 ever stops moving. Does it? Um, Ever? Never. Ever? Ever, ever. Never? It does not stop moving. Uh, As I I said on my business blog uh, a while ago, wood moves. How about now? Get over it. (laughs) Matt is feisty tonight. (laughs) Yes, it's moving he, now. He must be hungry. Um, first of all, one point of clarification, um, heartwood, heart pine is still being harvested, um, but you're right. It is old growth. Um, in far, as, as far as forestry management goes, you do need to take down old growth trees from time to time uh, because old growth trees, um, what, they, they, 
prevent, I guess we'll say, uh, they slow down the growth of some of the younger guys. Mm. So occasionally that you will take one down and it's heavily regulated on, you know, you take one down per hectare or something like that. Um, I know for a fact that the Colonial Williamsburg uh, carpenters and cabinet makers, they have a sawmill that I think almost exclusively works for them because in order to stay historically accurate or whatever, they use heart pine on just about everything as a secondary wood. Um, and they have... They get it delivered straight to them, and it's really, really pretty stuff. Hmm. Um, mostly the way you get it now is buying it reclaimed. They use it a lot in flooring and factories and things like that. So if you ever run into those kind of um, uh, revival-type communities where they're taking old horseradish factories and turning them into office buildings or apartments or whatever, you usually can find that heart pine for sale on Craigslist. It's stuff, stuff is awesome. Nice. Yeah. Now, to his original point um, – Wood, again, wood will move every time the moisture, the humidity changes. It's just going to continue to do that with the seasons. Second of all, this is bound up in a log. So you have no idea what kind of tension the wood is under. If that log has been sitting there drying for 100 years, there is a buttload of tension built up in that log. Um, that's why logs crack and check because they don't have any place to go. Those The, the ring... The growth ring is intact, so as it shrinks or it expands, it has to has to blow up. So there could be all kinds of built-up tension in that log. I'm not saying don't do it, obviously, but I would definitely recommend getting those logs, those boards cut thicker, quite a bit thicker than you think you're going to need, and still give them time to acclimate. Shannon, would you um, say that the log over time just gets all pithed off? Yes, <laughs> it does. Well, that's a good one, guys. That is a good one. <laughs> okay. The that's- other thing, the other thing here. When were those logs felled? Not like 101 years ago, but if they were felled, I mean, he probably doesn't know, but if they were felled in the spring or the summer when the sap was rising, you could have a fair amount of rot in there as well. Mm. Um, Those cambium layers and under the bark and into the sapwood, that's where the sap runs. That's why we call it sapwood. That's basically candy for bugs. And if the sap was rising when that tree was felled, um, most of that log could be, you know, eaten through. Yeah, And anybody who tells you that bugs and emerald post beetles and, and all those guys don't like heartwood has never, you know, split open a log and found <laughs> bug tracks through the heartwood there. Mm-hmm. So it, it is something, again, I don't want to scare them off. This sounds like an awesome find and go for it. Just be prepared that it's not going to be all rosy inside that log that's been sitting there for 100 years. Cool. Sweet. All right. Well, hey, uh, we got another one here from who is this from? Who are you? Who? Oh, it's Brian. Brian. It's or, Brian, guys. Brian. Oh, maybe. it's Brian. Brian. <laughs> hey, is that wood done drying yet? <laughs> Not yet. So, so anyway, so Brian says, you know what? I'm going to set the stage here. It's hot. It's near 100% humidity, and I sweat all over my tools. Mm, this would be so much hotter if it was a girl saying this. Oh, really? You sweat all over your tools? <laughs> oh, man. So anyways, I recently purchased two, Lee, two new Lee Nielsen planes. As soon as I got them, I applied some paste wax to each. Each day when I'm done using them, I wipe them down with a rag with chamomile oil. I came back from a long weekend out of town and found one of the planes had some surface marks on the one side. I assume this is from sweat or maybe body oil. I tried some 4 aught steel wool, but it didn't completely clean it off. I also have several spots on my table saw with the same spots. Now, on these table saw, uh, on the table saw, I've used WD-40 and 320 grit sandpaper, and I can never seem to get them fully off. These are purely cosmetic, but I like to keep my machines looking as new as possible. What do you suggest I do? Mm-hmm. Now, since this is the perfect time of year 
for me and I'm pretty sure the rest of you with the humidity and everything. Oh, except for Mark, who has zero humidity. Hey, we have a little. Come on. Okay. <laughs> well, there's that one. What, you have a week in there where it <laughs> rains and then suddenly it just goes away? It's been raining for the last month. Okay, well, just never so Mark has the some humidity. <laughs> right. yeah, but anyways, one thing I, I, I'm seeing in here is he says he used WD-40 and 320 sandpaper. Uh, I don't see anything in there about putting on some sort of top coat. And I know this is a topic that has come up. In fact, I think we had a, a, a similar question a few weeks ago, if mm-hmm. I remember right. And one of the things I'm going to recommend is uh, once you do maybe clean that stuff off, put on one of those protective top coats. In fact, we have, I'll put in a link here for Bostic Top Coat. And this is more or less kind of like one of those, uh, I, I always think of like the T9s. It's kind of got the, the, the special little protective coating on there. So you'd put this on after you clean the surface, mm-hmm. and it should help to inhibit rust from forming. Obviously, it's not going to stop it completely, but it will inhibit it enough so that maybe you can keep an eye on it and come back in and get all obsessive-compulsive on it if necessary. Um, another thing I'm thinking is, if you're really having a major issue with humidity, this is one of those things where you might want to start, especially say those hand planes, you might want to wrap them in say like a plane sock or maybe, uh, I was, some, what was the one that was like, not butcher or block stripe paper, sock. Or a stripe sock. sock, a stripe sock would definitely work. It, would, it doesn't just have to be a plane sock. It would confuse the humidity because it's not sure which end of the stripe to follow. And, um, you know, go from there. But there's there's a whole bunch of different, like for the table saw even, I'm going to go back to the table saw now, you can get one of those magnetic covers that would help to mm, give you yeah, a nice little barrier awesome. between the metal and the humidity. Um, you can get a, a nice little canvas cover for that. Really, the main thing is you want to get something between your metal surfaces and the humidity. Uh, you could even go so far as those nice little desiccant packs. So that's yeah, that's my advice. Um, Have you, you guys ever gotten that that stain off? I know exactly what he's talking about. No, no I've got a hand no. plane that has the same exact thing. I have scrubbed and scrubbed, and it's like it is inset. It's yeah, you know I mean, what I consider them. Um, I consider yeah. them tattoos. Once yeah. you get a rust spot, it's a tattoo. Do not spend your time trying to grind it out because what you're oh. going to do is actually screw up the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, using three twenty on the surface sounds a little too aggressive to me. I would never hit my cast iron with anything less than, I mean, unless I'm really like rehabbing something um, right. less than 600, uh, because ultimately if you don't have active surface rust on the surface, you just have that little dark stain. That's nothing. Don't worry about it. You're going to actually do more damage, more harm than good by trying to, you know, scrub that thing out of there. You're going to create a little Valley for yourself. Well, and on top of it, like you said, like if you, if you even going with like a, a 320, when you, could maybe get yourself up to a finer grit if you're going to go with something a little bit coarser you're going to leave like a little extra surface on there that's going to make it even more uh, uh able for the, uh, speak matt uh, you're going to leave a surface that the humidity is really going to be able to grab onto you know and go from there think about like when we kind of like in between coats of finish sometimes you rough up the surface a little bit depending on what type of finish you're using so it has something to really grip onto um you could potentially even run into that to some degree with humidity it's going to suddenly see like oh look at all these neat little valleys and hills and Nooks everything and we set inside of yeah, yeah an can, english muffin here i could hold on to this look i'm upside down look ma i'm rusty <laughs> nice the one thing i'll say about your hand planes that that patina that slight stain i mean that is definitely from from body oil and like mark said as a tattoo it's like a badge of honor it means you've used that plane and it actually is somewhat protective of the surface 
when you look at some of these real old vintage planes that have a strong patina to them, there's not nearly as much rust on them as some of the others. It, it basically, think about it. You just wipe down your plane with camellia oil. Now you just wiped it down with body oil. So, or, or as Matt says, chamomile oil. Chamomile oil. Camellia, chamomile, whatever. He was on a roll. I didn't want to interrupt <laughs> yeah, him. Exactly. Um, I, did I just was just using my chamomile tea. <laughs> right. I dropped a link in the show notes for you, Brian. I did a, a podcast a while ago when I came back from woodworking in America with some of my tools. They sat in a stupidly sat on a metal toolbox in the back of a uh, pickup truck through a torrential rainstorm for 900 miles on the Oops. way back from woodworking in America. And I had a little bit of rust. So uh, if it helps, I go through my entire removal and prevention regimen that mm. might help you with some of the issues you're having. Very nice. All right, let's move into our iTunes reviews. Uh, you can go into iTunes, click, uh, well, actually search for Wood Talk first, and then click on the Ratings and Reviews tab. And you could even ask Matt exactly what it is that he hides under that woobie of his. It is not a bald spot. I am not using the same spray as uh, one of the Joeys on uh, the Real Housewives in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Don't watch that show. Okay, we'd uh, like to thank Jerry. Jerry. I don't think they can say Italy either. <laughs> Italy. Uh, we'd like to thank Jerry KD, Edgar Sonneberg, and Mosoak, who had this to say. Hand tools. That's what, that's what he titled it. Hand tools. <laughs> Shannon, I don't think hand tools are dumb. Love the new theme music. I enjoy listening to your podcasts. After listening to them for so long, you guys are like part of the family. Sweet. Move over. <laughs> Hand me that gym. I don't even know what that means. Did what? I say they were dumb at some point? No. Last time I said if you want to leave us a review and tell Shannon that you think hand tools oh, are dumb. Yeah. See, I usually stop listening after. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is the point in the show. the show. Well, this is the point where everyone can kind of turn everything off. Uh, <laughs> nothing important happens after this point. Um, good time to say that today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com <laughs> and SawStop at SawStop.com. Uh, go visit both of those companies because they support us. And, uh, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, you can also support us with recurring monthly donations if you want to, a very small amount like T-Dupper did. T-Dupp! Like yeah, exactly. We'd like to thank everybody who contributes that way directly. That really helps a lot. And uh, let's see, before I send it to Matt, I did want to mention that in probably like two hours, I'm going to be on the MWA, Modern Woodworkers Association podcast, to chat with those goons about some woodworking stuff. Those um, poor guys. If only they knew what they were getting into. Seriously. After, after doing Wood Talk, my brain is pretty much mush. I was going to say, you should have done it before the show. Of course, then we'd have to deal with ADD <laughs> yeah. Mark. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, well, maybe but- while you're, you're talking with them, you can uh, go ahead and start editing this show and get it posted. <laughs> That's true. I'm going yeah. to be listening just to hear the sound of just editing. In hear the me typing in the background and clicking. All right. So, Matt, if you want to give them the contact info, we'll get out of here. Hey, folks, do you have a comment, a question, or topic suggestion? Are you still listening at this point? Because this is the non-essential part. <laughs> yep. And, of course, we also want to know, hey, Shannon, is that wood dry yet? But anyway, so you have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And, of course, if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, hey, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com, which probably you should just make that your homepage. I really think that would be a good place for you to just start your day. That's not a bad idea. All right. Well, everybody, have a wonderful woodworking week, and we'll catch you next time. Happy day. 
This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.